Hi, welcome to another podcast of The Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. I have a powerful book for you today. Uh, not, not an easy one to read, and I don't mean that the vocabulary and the style of the sentences uh, are difficult, but it's the topic. It's called Unspeakable by Oz Guinness, and he deals with, as he says here, facing up to evil in an age of genocide and terror. And he calls it a guide to life's greatest challenge. Let me just tell you what a couple of people have said about it on the back cover. Here's a producer of CBS News 60 Minutes. Oz Guinness challenges us with a sobering truth. Evil is a fact of everyday life for the human race, but then he offers a brilliant map to help us navigate and confront the difficult landscape of modern life and modern evil. Dallas Willard says Guinness uses clear and forceful language, and he talks about the raw reality of rampant evil. And he says, then he gives us hope of being able to deal with evil in our personal lives, in our social settings. Willis uh, Dallas Willard calls it a great accomplishment. He's uh, a wonderful expert in uh, apologetics philosophy. Passed away some time ago, but uh, really appreciated this book. So Oz Guinness is an author and a speaker. I've uh, heard him. I've read some of his material. Graduate of University of London and Oxford, a very intelligent man, but a down-to-earth person. Written and edited all sorts of books. He's a speaker all over the world, lecturer. So when he speaks on a topic, people listen. And this book does that. Unspeakable is what it's called. So he's going to deal with things like, uh, let me just give you some of the questions that he's concerned with. Where does evil come from? What are the questions raised by evil that we can't ignore? Has the modern world made evil worse? And that's the part I wanted to look at today. How do the different ways of explaining evil affect how we respond to it? What must we do to fight evil effectively? Now, see, that's the important part, isn't it? We, we uh, feel despair when we hear about how awful people are to each other. But he talks about how to fight evil effectively. And then uh, another question, what does the existence of evil tell us about our ultimate beliefs? So it's, it's a powerful book. I wanted to focus on one chapter in particular. It's chapter 7 when he talks about freedom's tilt toward evil. How sad is that, huh? That uh, Talking about modern times. Are we just more aware of evil because newspapers report more things, or are we actually becoming worse as a society? We, we like to compliment ourselves. Hey, we're becoming more enlightened as a nation. We can do more things. Look at our technological accomplishments. But he says uh, that's not the case. And he starts with a story, a powerful story involving Davy Crockett. And of course, you think of Davy Crockett and you think about his death at the Alamo and fighting um, animals and all this kind of stuff. But Crockett was a congressman and he had a conscience. He stood up against the removal of the Cherokee Indians in 1830. That was a dark incident in American history. I mean, the history of these Cherokees, uh, they fought with General Jackson against Creek Indians. They created their own alphabet. They founded their own republic in 1827. They wrote their own constitution. They were doing the things that whites had told them to do. Hey, you guys need to civilize. So they're doing exactly that. But the uh, many of the whites wanted that Indian land for speculation and profit. And then they discovered gold on that land. Well, that was it. And so... Jackson pushed hard to get people out, get those Indians out of there. He says, uh, 
many of the greatest voices in the country, uh, Thomas Jefferson and Monroe and President Jackson and John C. Calhoun, were in favor, or they, they pushed it pretty hard, but there were some who opposed, including Davy Crockett. He was the loudest voice in Congress, and he he said, this is the wrong thing to do, and uh, he says, I'm going to be ashamed. Uh, I don't want to be ashamed in the day of judgment, so he was saying, God's going to judge him on something like this. Well, General Winfield Scott in 1838 and 7,000 U.S. soldiers invaded the Cherokee land, drove them out to Oklahoma on a thousand-mile march. 4,000 Native Americans died on the way, and that journey became known as the Trail of Tears. So he uses that start, that story about Davy Crockett, that he stood up because he said he didn't want to be ashamed on the Day of Judgment. Right? Not being ashamed on the Day of Judgment. And he says, what's going on? He says, is evil today going off on a, you know, going over the cliff? Uh, and he's going to bring in the Davy Crockett story later. He says, well, actually, evil is being transformed. And he says, the modern world is to blame. He says, there are three ways that the modern world has marginalized typical responses to evil. So what we're going to do then is take a look at these three ways that he says evil is being diluted or not talked about. Uh, he gives an example here. You know, it used to be you talked about things as sin, and that became crime, that became a sickness, and that turned into the word dysfunction. So he said, if you don't call it evil, it's not that evil disappears. It's actually freer to surprise and erode and ruin our ourselves. He quotes from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He says, there's a tilt of freedom toward evil. And that's the title of this chapter, Freedom's Tilt Toward Evil. And he says, you know where the worst example is? He said, where, where do you see freedom tilting toward evil? He said, most people are going to say, oh, that, that's the Germans in World War II. Oh, it's the Russians after World War II. Oh, it's the Chinese in the 50s under Mao. Oh, it's the Cambodians or it's the Rwandans. He says, no. He says, the worst example is the carelessness of people in the United States. This is the land of the brave and the free, he says. They, they, they fight environmental erosion and pollution, but he said there's a cultural erosion going on. So he says we are actually today in this modern world, we pride ourselves as Americans on all that we're accomplishing, but he said there are three things going on that uh, is allowing an erosion of opposition to evil. So what are they? Well, here we go. Number one. He says the notion of under God, he puts that in quotation marks, has been neutered in American life. He said at one time, everybody, in the, not everybody, but the vast majority of the United States realized that there was an accountability that would happen after our lives. There was a providence that was watching over us. There was the God of Sinai that could look down and there were no secrets that could be hidden from him. And he even uh, goes through a little bit of American history here. He says John Cotton back in the early New England days, he said, we have to limit power on the earth because if you let power take over on the earth, it's like you don't think there's a God who's in charge. He says Davy Crockett is part of that idea of being under God because he was worried about the judgment if he didn't oppose this uh, terrible thing done to the Cherokees. Alongside him, there's a congressman, Henry Storrs. He also opposed the uh, removal of the Cherokees and in one of his speeches, he said to the people who wanted it, he said, you will stand condemned by the law of God. Benjamin Franklin talked about 
maybe a national seal for the United States should say rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Well, even Thomas Jefferson, he didn't live it out very well, but he said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. So he says, all right, now comes the modern time. He said, we've got groups of people that are pushing an extreme separation of church and state. He said, the framers wouldn't have recognized this. So what are they doing? As they separate church and state, they, they want the church to disappear. And they want those references to a higher power. They want that to disappear. They want the state to be the highest power. And he says, that's the problem. So public discourse is being stripped of any God references. So you're no longer needing to worry about being under God. So there's the first erosion of uh, opposition to evil. The notion of under God is being tossed away. Here's the second one. He says, we're dismissing the American framers' solution for the problem of freedom. Now you say, wait a minute. How is it that freedom is a problem? Isn't it a good thing? Well, sure it is. But all of those early framers, the founders of our country, realized how transient freedom was. It just didn't last. You think about the Greek states. Yeah, they were free, but that didn't last very long. So he says they saw the challenge of uh, the Constitution always to how do you sustain freedom? Well, today, if you ask people, how, how did... How did we get freedom out of the Constitution? He says a lot of people are going to say, well, separation of powers. So the president can't overact uh, you know, beyond the Congress, and Congress can't do more than whatever the Constitution says. So we've got all these separation of powers. But he says the ingenious American system of checks and balances is just half of their solution. He wants to focus on the other half. He says it's a, an enduring triangle of freedom. And I want to slow down and have you think about this because I like this very much. He says, freedom requires virtue. Virtue requires faith of some sort. And faith requires freedom. And he says, that's how you keep a republic free. So let me go through that real quickly, but uh, one more time. Freedom requires virtue. Okay, so if you give people total freedom to do whatever they want and they're not virtuous, what do you get? Anarchy. You get terrible things happening. So you've got to have virtue if you're going to have freedom. Well, how do you get virtue? Do you just tell people be virtuous? Do you pass a law? No. He says you need some kind of faith to make them virtuous. Now, how do you maintain that kind of faith? You can't decree it. You've got to have freedom so people can worship the way they want. So there we go. All three of those things. Freedom requires virtue. Virtue requires faith of some kind. And faith requires freedom. And then he quotes from some of the founding fathers Benjamin Franklin said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. And Adams, John Adams, echoes that. He says, we have no government armed with powers capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. So let me unpack that for just a second. He says there's no government that can deal with human passions that are unbridled by morality. They don't have any moral compass. They, nothing is restraining them. How do you have a government handle people like that? He says our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So that's interesting, isn't it? <clears throat> the constitution depended on a moral and religious people so that they would be virtuous. Well, what's happened today? He says uh, 
Os Guinness says, people are being pushed to the sidelines, they're being told to be quiet. If they have a, a moral, a, a, a religious perspective, and only the public square it will be totally secular. That will be totally secular. If you want to meet on Sunday and sing your songs to Jesus, okay, go ahead. But the secular view is supposed to triumph out in the public. And then he makes a really good point that I think Adams was getting at. He said, you know, if you rely on law, but you don't have faith and virtue, what do you end up with? You've got to pass more laws. You've got to have greater regulation. And you undermine freedom. I mean, take a look at what's going on in our society today. We've got cameras everywhere. Surveillance is becoming huge. Why do we need that much surveillance? Because you can't trust people. People are not virtuous anymore. And so you've got to pass more laws. You've got to get more cops on the street. You've got to have more surveillance going on. He says, America, if it's going to work, has to cultiv cultivate those virtues for freedom. And they've got to be passed from generation to generation. He says, if you celebrate freedom, like we do on the 4th of July, but you take out all virtues, he says, you're going to lose freedom. And then what's left it will be evil. So let's go through those two points one more time. Why are good, good things eroding? Why are evil things rising? Because we've lost the idea of under God. And secondly, we've lost the idea of being a virtuous people to give us more freedom. Here's the third thing that he says is going on. And unfortunately, I think he's right on. He says the third grand erosion in America of our, uh, our cultural strengths as a religious people, he says we have this passion to transgress, this drive to destroy traditions, to flout the standards. It's turning evil into an aggressive force. He says nobody wants to accept any limits these days. Uh, the idea is to break those taboos, open up forbidden knowledge, and celebrate transgression. And how is this happening? He says, well... You have an unrestrained artistic license. you got greed for commercial profit, a rage for free speech and be damned, he says, a ravening hunger for celebrity power, a, a huge desire to abolish the lines between fantasy and reality. He says we've got this crazy belief that if you live closest to death, those are the people that are most alive. And he says we've got a huge lack of history. So he says we're lounging in a fool's paradise of deeds without consequences. And I would really strongly agree with all of that, especially this lack of history. Nobody knows the history of other cultures and other groups of people that have done this uh, kind of passion to transgress. You think about the French. In the French Revolution, it went off the rails, didn't it? Then the idea was throw off all uh, restraints of faith. And he says today, he said, we got this excesses of the great ones, the, the ones, the celebrities, the ones that are high up in our society, and he got the fascination of the general public. He says that's an unholy package. He said it's radical ideas, it's violent films, explicit songs, brutal video games, edgy cable shows, scandals. He says this momentum is growing, and what was unimaginable becomes thinkable and then fashionable. So what used to be abnormal is now normal. And he says each transgression builds and binds us to the next one. It's like a, a, a water going down a drain. It's circling that drain and it's going faster and faster. And key parts, and he says in the Western culture today, we're celebrating rebellion. Do whatever you want. You know, whatever's forbidden, do it. And he says we're excusing in these people what we wouldn't tolerate in our children for a second. Evil is becoming cool. 
And he says, we ought to think about how we're being viewed by much of the world. You know, we think of ourselves as at the top, uh, the people admire us. He says, not true. He said, people are seeing us as an open sewer. And uh, it's, it's part of the appeal of the Islamic world. Look at the Western world. They're a bunch of uh, degraded people. You really want to live like that? So he says, that's not good. He says, the idea that our moral, this is at the end of the chapter, the idea that our moral and social progress will be as effortless as our scientific and technological progress, and that we no longer need the boundaries and restraints of faith or ethics in the past, he says, that's a pernicious folly of the 20th century. Let me unpack that for a second, because I think that's really important. He says, we've made great scientific and technological progress. Oh, yes, I agree, we have. He says, so then we, we have that same optimism when we turn to moral and social progress. We think we're going to progress just as easily there by tossing out things from the past. And he says, no, <clears throat> any tilt toward evil at the end of the chapter, he says, is an act of hostility toward civilization and a vote for barbarism. That's sad, isn't it? Any tilt toward evil, and this whole chapter is talking about us tilting toward evil, is an act of hostility toward civilization and a vote for barbarism. So I covered a, a kind of a discouraging chapter looking at how we're tilting toward terrible things, tilting toward evil. Thank goodness he has chapters on how we can combat this, and I hope to get back to this book because I do want to cover those chapters as well. Well, thank you for uh, being part of this podcast, and uh, hope to see you in another one.